chapter 21. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them, and the Greek word for departed is torn ourselves away, and set sail running a straight course, meaning that they, the winds were with them. They didn't have to tack back and forth. The winds were with them. And so running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes. These are islands out in the Mediterranean, but not that far out, not too far from the coast. The coast is 45 miles from Miletus. Rhodes is 70 miles. And uh, then they finally come to Patera, uh, where the boat made port. And that is a large port uh, city, uh, about 70 miles also from Rhodes. Now, this indicates that Paul was on a small ship here. The smaller ships didn't really launch out too far in the Mediterranean. It was a little dangerous. So they hugged the coast. And they were what we would call commuter ships because they kind of stopped at every island along the way. And so here they stop at coast, they stop at roads, and then they come into port at uh, Patera. And again, this is where the larger ships would often dock to uh, load and unload cargo. And then, of course, that cargo was taken to various destinations in Asia Minor, which is where Patera was on the south coast of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Verse 2, And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. So now Paul has actually boarded a large vessel that is going to be an express vessel. In other words, it's not going to stop along the way anywhere. It's going to go right from uh, Patara all the way to Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, where Tyre and Sidon are located. This, by the way, is a large ship. These uh, large, uh, we know that because it set sail way out into the Mediterranean, so it wasn't hugging the coast, but it took seven days to unload and reload this thing. Uh, these were very large ships, and they were primarily cargo ships, but they did take on passengers. So now they're on their way to Phoenicia. And verse 3, when we uh, had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Verse 4, in finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Actually, the Greek is, in seeking out disciples. And they found some, and they stayed with these disciples seven days while the ship was unloaded and reloaded. Now, it's interesting that there is a fellowship, a Christian church there in Tyre, which is, again, modern-day Lebanon. Now, Paul didn't plant that church directly, although indirectly he did have a hand in getting it started. You say, well, how? Well, he persecuted it into existence. Remember now that after the persecution arose, after the, the death of Stephen, the disciples were scattered everywhere. And we learn in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, some of them went up to Phoenicia. And so the church was started there as a direct result of the persecution that started after Stephen was martyred. And who spearheaded that persecution? Saul. He was like a madman, breathing fire, threats, dragging people out of their houses to stand trial. I mean, he was a man on a mission. He was going to stamp out this cult no matter what it took. And so he was like a, just a madman, it says. Well, he persecuted this church into existence. And, uh, and now here he is staying with some of the disciples of a church that he helped start indirectly. Well, verse 4 goes on to say, They told Paul, these disciples there in Tyre, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, 
this is a, a controversial passage, a controversial section of Scripture. The controversy surrounds the, 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 um, the question, the idea, was Paul disobeying the Holy Spirit by going to Jerusalem? Some say yes. Some say that Paul was definitely disobeying the Holy Spirit. We see it right here in verse 4. That these disciples through the Spirit said that Paul was not to go to Jerusalem. But people reason that Paul has such a heart for his Jewish countrymen. We know he did. Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Paul says, If it was possible, I would give up my own salvation if my fellow Jews could come to know Christ and be saved. That's a deep love and concern. And so we know Paul had a heart for his Jewish countrymen. And people say, yes, even though the Holy Spirit told Paul, you're not to go to Jerusalem, Paul was convinced that he could reach the Jews for Christ. He could reach them there for Christ because he, he, he was one of them. He persecuted the church. He was antagonistic towards the cause of Christ. Certainly if they hear my testimony and realize that I was one of them, they'll listen to me. And so the critics say he had a good heart, he had good intentions, but he was disobedient. Was he? Was he? Well, let's look at that. I, I, I'll give you what I think, okay? Turn to Acts chapter 16. Before we do that, let me just stop and say this. In uh, verse 4, where it says, These disciples told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. The Greek there is... Um, is not clear. It's not clear that it's actually saying the Holy Spirit told Paul through these disciples not to go to Jerusalem. The Greek could simply mean that these disciples were exercising the gift of prophecy, which is, of course, a gift of the Holy Spirit, and that, in fact, they were just exercising this gift of prophecy. But, you know, when it comes to the gift of prophecy, oftentimes, as God speaks through the human vessel, some of the human vessel rubs off on the prophecy. Sometimes we, we give our own interpretation to that prophecy, thinking that it's what God has actually said. In other words, God could have said through the Holy Spirit to these disciples, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be persecuted, he is going to be imprisoned, he's going to be beaten. And then the person delivering the prophecy could have interpreted that to mean that God didn't want Paul to go. And so they added that. See what I'm saying? How that the human element can get involved in there? Someone has said that prophecy in the church is kind of like drinking from a, a garden hose on a hot day in the summertime. It's always refreshing, but you always get that hose taste, don't you? <laughs> when God uses a human vessel to speak through, it refreshes the church, but there's always some of the vessel that rubs off a little bit. That's why Paul said, look, let two or three prophesy and the others do what? judge because we can't be sure that a person is really speaking on behalf of the lord i'm sure they think they are but there are times when we feel very strongly about something but we're not speaking from the mouth of the lord we're speaking out of the imagination or the feelings of our own heart read jeremiah 23 and this happens and even well-meaning christians really could feel strongly about something and and maybe god has spoken and yet they kind of embellish a little bit, not meaning to, but they really feel that God is saying, well, if imprisonment, persecution await for Paul at Jerusalem, God is telling him not to go. And so that's what they bring forth. But let's explore this just a little deeper. 
Turn to Acts 16. Let's look at Paul's life, and let's see if this really is consistent with what people say he is doing at this point. In Acts chapter 16, in verse 6, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to to Mysiah, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's obvious as you read the book of Acts, Paul the Apostle was a man who was, who was deeply connected to the Lord. He was very sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it seems from everything else we've read of Paul in prior years, that any time the Spirit forbid him from going somewhere and then directed him to go somewhere else, he always obeyed instantly. It seems inconceivable to me that at this stage in his life, and he knows that he could be coming to the end of his life. He doesn't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He might be put to death. He knows that. It's inconceivable to me that at this stage in his life, he is going to all of a sudden become self-willed, rebellious, and do his own thing. It just doesn't seem consistent with the great apostle Paul. Also, in chapter 19, verse 21, now at this point, Paul is already purposing to go to Jerusalem after he leaves Ephesus. And when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. It doesn't say he purposed in his own heart, or he decided he was going to do this. It says that he purposed in the Spirit, not even his Spirit, but the Spirit. I assume here it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is in Miletus and he's got the Ephesian elders there and he's addressing them one last time, he said in verse 22, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. In other words, the Spirit, I'm a captive of the Holy Spirit. He is bringing me to, to Jerusalem, in a sense, okay? I am bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now you say, well, isn't that good enough reason not to go there? I mean, if the Holy Spirit's telling him every city he goes to, on the way, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, there's going to be chains, imprisonment, beatings, and who knows, maybe even death. Isn't it just common sense to say, well, I guess God's showing me this to keep me from going? Well, that's an assumption. We can't base God's leading in our lives on assumptions. We have to have some things concrete. Besides the fact If you turn back to Acts chapter 9, when Paul first got saved, actually, God has, Jesus has already appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And uh, he's blind now. And he is taken to the house of, uh, uh, he is taken into the city. uh, And um, God has called Ananias, a disciple in that city of Damascus, to go to Paul. And the Lord said, 
verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentile, before Gentile kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You see, right off the bat, as Paul got saved, God began to show him the many things he was going to have to suffer for the cause of Christ. It was something that God did for Paul. He doesn't do that for, uh, I don't think, a lot of us, but for Paul, because Paul had a special ministry. It seems as though God prepared him everywhere he went for what was coming. That was to prepare him, not to prohibit him. And I believe that the Lord kept telling Paul, look, every city, as he was moving towards Jerusalem, Paul, now understand, it's going to be hard. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be beaten. Things are going to get rough. And I don't think the Spirit was saying that to keep him from going, but just to prepare him for what was coming. In other words, Paul, if you're not really in this, if you're not prepared to really suffer for Jesus, you better not go to Jerusalem. I'm just preparing you. See? And I believe that what was what was going on. Back in Acts chapter 20, in verse 24, Paul goes on and he says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy. Now, do you think... And, of course, Paul's race was his ministry, his life. Do you think that if Paul was being disobedient here and totally going against the will of God for his life at this point, he could say this, that he was going to Jerusalem to finish his race with joy? I don't think he could say that. And he goes on to say this, And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul obviously believed that going to Jerusalem was part of the ministry that Jesus Christ had called him to fulfill. Well, once he gets there, things don't go all that well, as we're going to find out. But at one point, he's brought before the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 23, verse 1, Paul, it says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I don't think Paul could have made a statement like that if he knew he was living in absolute rebellion against the will of God. Plus, in verse 11, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Look, if Paul hadn't gone to Jerusalem, he would have never been arrested and sent to Rome. And so Jesus is saying, Paul, you did a good job. You, you, you testified of me here in Jerusalem, and now you must go to Rome and testify for me there. So to me, I can't conceive of Paul being out of the will of God here, as many will point out he was. I don't believe he was. Besides that, again, verse 24 of chapter 20 he said, I don't count my life dear to myself. My whole passion in life is to finish the what? The race. As we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, around verse 7, Paul said, as he's now, this is his last epistle, his last letter. He's going to be executed soon. And one of the last things he says is, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. 
I have kept the faith. So obviously in Paul's mind, the race or the course that Jesus had given him to fulfill went right through Jerusalem. And so I, I really believe that he was in the will of God here. Now I know that people will say, but wait a minute. If he hadn't gone to Jerusalem, he would have never been arrested. He could have had some, some, some more good years of ministry. He could, have, he could have gone on more missionary journeys. Look at the people he would have helped if he had been able to do that. Who knows how many more he could have reached? Well, I'm sure he could have reached more and would have. However, when he was arrested in Jerusalem and finally sent to Rome, he was in prison there in Rome. And it was during his imprisonment in Rome that he wrote what was called the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now folks, I'm totally convinced that those prison epistles have impacted more people throughout the centuries and around the world than Paul could have ever impacted by a fourth or a fifth missionary journey. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. What looks to us to be, oh, what a tragedy. The great apostle Paul has been imprisoned. His ministry has come to an end. Did it? What did he say when he wrote to the Philippians? This is great. I'm chained between prison guards. Uh, the palace guards. I'm, I'm witnessing these guys all day long. Oh, by the way, Caesar's own household greets you. The staff is getting saved over here. I'm, a, I'm an ambassador in chains. This is great. His ministry didn't come to an end. It was flourishing. Plus, he's writing epistles that the rest of the church is going to benefit from for 2,000 years. No, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. That's why we must always follow the leading of the Lord and everything. So, no, I don't think Paul was out of the will of God. I don't believe that for a minute. Verse 5, And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children, Till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Everywhere Paul goes, the same thing. People rejoice to see him come and they weep to see him go. Would to God it would be like that with every Christian. For too many Christians, people weep to see them come and rejoice to see them go. Because there's a cantankerous, a self-righteous, a holier-than-thou, a condemning and condescending attitude that a lot of Christians bring to the people they come in contact with. I'll never forget, years ago, I was in a Bible college in the area, and they had a kind of a banquet for people that support the college. And because I was a student, but also a pastor, they invited my wife and I to come. And we sat at a table, and I'll never forget this, with Christian couples that were involved in ministry. I'm talking about people that were fairly, you know, I mean, they were fairly well connected in the Christian community and the Bible college and uh, their church, and they were just well-known Christians. And I have to tell you, it was the most uncomfortable, the most unenjoyable evening I've ever spent. No, nobody smiled. They hardly looked at you. Almost like, you know, to talk to me, and my wife was almost like they were putting up with us. And I thought, you know, if this is the way you act in public, it's no wonder people aren't coming to Christ in droves. I mean, Christians can be some of the most unloving, kind of cantankerous people. Don't be that way. Jesus wasn't that way. Paul wasn't that way. 
I mean, we, we are to be the kind of people who are so loving, so giving, and, and just supportive and just encouraging that people rejoice to see us come and they weep when we go instead of the other way around. So anyways, verse 6, when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship. Now it's been seven days, so the ship is now unloaded, cargo reloaded. And now they board the ship again, and these folks returned home. Verse 7, and when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeting the brethren and stayed with them one day. Ptolemaeus is 25 miles south of Tyre on the coast. It's the modern port city of Akko. So if you were look on a modern map of Israel, you will see Akko not far from Haifa, about 25 miles from Tyre. And that's where they, when we go to Israel, we go there. We stop at Akko. Uh, so you can understand, get an idea of well, what's going on in these places that the Bible talks about. So they stayed one day. Verse 8, on the next day, we who were uh, Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. They come down to Caesarea. And if you've ever been uh, to Caesarea, uh, where it's just basically ruins today, but you can see how gorgeous it is. I mean, you're right on the Mediterranean. You can imagine how, at one time, how beautiful this city was. Now, Philip had relocated to Caesarea about 20 years earlier. You remember how that Philip had been one of the seven. What does that mean? It means he was one of the original deacons that had been chosen in Acts chapter 6. Remember how that the uh, the, the food distribution program, the welfare program, had gotten kind of so large that the, the apostles couldn't handle it anymore. And some of the Grecian Jews felt like their widows were being slighted and that the apostles being from Israel, Judea, that their widows were being favored. And the apostles said, look, we're not trying to favor anybody. or we're just, It's just gotten out of our hands. It's just too big. We shouldn't have to take time away from the teaching of the word and prayer. So you guys, you, you Grecian Jews, you Hellenist Jews, pick out seven men of your own. And we'll put them over this whole thing. Well, two of them were Stephen and Philip. Stephen, of course, was the first martyr of the church. When Stephen was stoned, Paul was a young Pharisee on the Sanhedrin. And Paul said, I was there, I held the coats of the people that threw stones at Stephen. I, I consented to his death. I, I cast my vote for his death. Well, after that a persecution arose, Philip did some ministry in the area and finally wound up in Caesarea. Twenty years has passed. And now here comes Paul to Philip's house. I don't know if they've ever met apart from this meeting. doesn't say. But can you imagine two enemies? Not that Philip was Saul's enemy, but... Saul made it a point that every Christian was his enemy. But here all of a sudden now, no longer enemies, but because of Christ, they're brothers. Isn't that awesome how that works? Only Jesus Christ could take enemies and make them stronger in their love for each other than brothers. I will, I'll never forget the, uh, the documentary we saw last week, Beyond the Gates of Splendor, talking about the... Uh, the, the five missionaries in Ecuador in the 50s that were killed by the, uh, with the Aka Indians. And one of the guys, uh, when he was killed, uh, I believe it was Nate Saint, 
his daughter was only a little gal. She was maybe six. Well, the guys have been murdered by the Indians, and now the wives come in and begin to minister, and these Aka Indians get saved and radically transformed basically overnight. 20 years has passed, and now this young woman now who wants to be baptized goes and feels like, I want to be baptized by the people that have impacted my spiritual development the most. So she actually wanted the two men who killed her father to baptize her. And so one on either side of her, here she said, here I am standing with the two men that killed my father. And all I can feel is such a deep love for these two guys. Only Jesus Christ can do that. It's a supernatural thing. When we get saved, we are bound in the spirit to each other. And anywhere you go, maybe you've experienced this. You can go halfway around the world, and when you find Christians, it's like you instantly have a connection. They're family. It's because of Jesus Christ. And Paul is experiencing this. Everywhere he went, he had family. But here, even one man who used to be an enemy, now two brothers because of what Jesus Christ has done in their lives. And so he stayed with Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So he's got four, and, and the word indicates these girls are probably in their teens. So, you know, maybe 13, 15, 17, 19, just, you know, young gals, yet they're prophesying. You know, I try to communicate to the youth group. From day one, I've told these, these teens, these teenagers, look, our society doesn't really know what to do with you guys. Parents don't know what to do with you. You're not really kids anymore, but you're not really adults, so what do we do? We just give you money until you go to the mall. I said, but you know, and a lot of churches handle you guys like that. They don't know what to do with you. They've got to do something with you because it looks good to have a, a teen youth night. So let's get you in here and give you pizza and play basketball, and we'll just kind of entertain you. I said, look, guys, I said, you know what? You can go to the YMCA, you can go to the park district and play basketball and volleyball and do all those fun things, and I'm not against that. But when you come to church, the greatest thing I can do for you is not to entertain you, is to teach you and to take you seriously and to tell you that the greatest revivals that have ever happened in the history of the world often have happened with young people, teenagers, and God is taking you seriously. If you don't take yourself seriously, then God can't do much with you. But if you say to yourself, I know I'm just a teenager, but Timothy was a teenager when God called him. Jeremiah was 17 when God called him. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was 15 when the Lord called her. Some of the greatest work that God has done in the history of this world, he has done through young people. And so I wanted our teens to understand that. Look, you're never too young to serve the Lord. And if you take God seriously, he'll take you seriously because the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the face of the whole earth looking for somebody, anybody whose heart is loyal to him that he might show himself strong through. And believe me, age doesn't matter. And so here Philip had four young teenage daughters. Already they're, they're spirit-filled young women and they're prophesying and no doubt being a blessing to those around them. And so verse 10 says, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands 
of the Gentiles. Now, Agabus was a prophet in the early church. Paul knew Agabus. They had worked together earlier. And Agabus was kind of like um, a prophet cut from the Old Testament cloth. Uh, he was a kind of a, a like an Old Testament-style prophet. Because you remember in the Old Testament, uh, they would often be very dramatic uh, and use props and and, and different things to communicate the word of God. Jeremiah did it. Isaiah did it. Ezekiel. They all did it. And there's Agabus, you know, in a very dramatic kind of a fashion, Old Testament style. Takes Paul's belt, you know, and binds his hands and feet and says, you know, when the man who owns his belt gets to Jerusalem, be ready. Your hands and feet are going to be bound and so on and so forth. Now, when the disciples heard this, they responded the way any of us would, no doubt, if somebody we loved was bent on going somewhere and the Holy Spirit testified when, you, when they got there, they were going to be persecuted, imprisoned, and so on. Listen how they responded. And when we heard, and Luke is including himself here, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when we would, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Here we have a group of godly, spirit-filled saints. And they're disagreeing with each other on what God's will is for Paul's life. Can godly Christians disagree? There are some people that think that if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, then we should all agree on every issue. I don't see that in the Bible. In an ideal world where we were all perfect Christians in total <coughs> contact with the Holy Spirit all the time, yeah, but we don't live in an ideal world. Even in the church, we are definitely not perfect. And so here you have... Paul, who feels with all of his heart that the Holy Spirit is leading him to Jerusalem, that he might testify of Jesus to the Jews there, even though it's going to be difficult and it may mean his life, he's willing to do it. And here the other Christians who come across Paul and who hear this are like, Paul, don't go. Don't let the other guys that you brought give the offering to the saints in Jerusalem. You don't have to do it. You don't have to go. Paul, you're too important to the body of Christ. Don't go. And Paul's like, man, you're breaking my heart. Don't do this. Don't try to turn me away from the path that God has called me to. I'm convinced that a lot of well-meaning Christians, well-meaning, have tried to steer people away from what they believe God was calling them to do. Again, I'll, I'll use one of the missionaries that died there in Ecuador in the, in the 50s, Jim Elliott. And I've talked about this before. From what I understand, Jim was studying to be a doctor at one point or had wanted to be a doctor. And then the Lord got, of his heart, got a hold of his heart and put missionary on his heart to be a missionary. And we shared it with his family and friends. You know what they said? And they were all godly people. They said, Jim, don't do that. You'll be throwing so much away. Don't be a fool. And Jim responded, that man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now you say, well, yeah, but he went and was martyred. Was it God's will? Well, when you see what happened through his being martyred and the rest of those men, how God touched an entire group of individuals and started a tremendous work 
among the Akas and other Indians in that region. Yes, I would have to say it was God's will, even though it meant Jim's life. Like Paul, he was willing to give up what he couldn't keep to gain what he couldn't lose. That's how Paul felt. And so let me just say this, though. When it comes to God leading your life, don't ever, ever let anybody else tell you what God is calling you to do. God's got your number. He doesn't need to call me up to tell me to tell you what his will for your life is. And by the way, don't come to me and say, Pastor, what's God's will for my life? Now, if you're going to come to me and say, well, you know what? I feel that God is telling me to move in with my boyfriend or move in with my girlfriend. Then I'm going to tell you what God's will is for your life. And it's not to do that because the Bible is pretty clear. But if you're going to come to me and say, Pastor, I'm feeling like maybe I ought to go to Africa. What do you say? No way am I touching that. Okay? Because I know what's going to happen. If I tell you, hey, Africa, great, go for it. And you go to Africa and you're sitting in your mud hut and it's 120 degrees out and you're getting eaten alive by the mosquitoes, you're going to say, that idiot Ballmeyer, I should have never listened to him. And you would be right. You should never listen to me in that regard. Look, it's wonderful when God uses the saints to confirm something. And I look to that. I say, Lord, you know, I really feel you're opening these doors for me to do this. Could you put it on somebody's heart to confirm it somehow? And I'll have Christians come to me and say, you know, Phil, I just just felt like the Lord put something on my heart for you, a scripture, and it's just, boom, right exactly what I needed to hear. And that's wonderful. I look to you to give input into my spiritual development and leading of the Holy Spirit, but I can't look to you to do it for me. And you must never look to me. You, you always need to look to God for him to direct your life. Nobody, God is not going to speak to anybody more clearly about your life than you. And so there are people who are convinced that God tells them what everybody else should be doing. Don't listen to them. You, I mean, because here you see it. You see godly people who love Paul that are trying to keep him from the will of God. They don't mean to do it. They're, they're thinking that they're helping him, but they're not. They're dissuading him. And sometimes well-meaning people, you know, you know who does it the most? People that love you the most. If my son said to me, Dad, I really feel led to go to Indonesia or I, Uganda or someplace where it's a hotbed of, 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 you know, of persecution and so on, I'm going to maybe try to talk him out of that because I love him. But I have to let him make his own decisions. I have to let him be led by God. Because God is not going to speak to anybody about his life more than him. Because I can't come between that. I can pray. I can ask God to make it clear to him and to confirm it through somebody else. But I, I can't make that decision for him. And that's what I think is a good lesson here. Paul felt like the Holy Spirit was telling him to do something. And he was going to do it even though other godly saints around him were saying, Paul, don't do it. He was resolute in his work for the Lord. Well, verse 15, And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And, um, of course, they got there for the Feast of Pentecost. It doesn't say that, but we know he must have because he hung around in Caesarea for a long while, resting, and he would have done that if, uh, if he was 
not going to make the Feast of Pentecost. So obviously he got into the area in plenty of time, took a week or two to rest in Caesarea, and then he was accompanied the 65 miles down to Jerusalem by the saints there in Caesarea. And what a comfort that must have been to Paul. Think about that. I mean, he knows when he gets to Jerusalem, things are going to get pretty rough. It may even mean his death. And so he is now walking the 65 miles. It's about a three-day journey by foot. Surrounded by saints. Surrounded by the disciples. Who are no doubt loving Paul and encouraging Paul and praying with Paul and for Paul. That must have been a great comfort to him. You know, the body of Christ is such a blessing. You know, I've experienced it so many times. I know you probably have too. When you're going through a very difficult time and those Christians come around you, not the ones that want to condemn you or tell you, I told you so, you shouldn't have married that guy, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, you're going through a difficult time and here they are, they're just loving on you and they're just, they're just supporting you and just praying for you. Man, there's nothing like it. And that's what Paul had as he was on his way towards Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So this Nason is, was an early disciple, which means he was saved probably at the very beginning, maybe Pentecost. He's been around for a long time now. He is one of those early disciples. And so he has the gift of hospitality, and so they lodge with him. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us, gladly well yeah because they loved paul number one number two what did he have with him what did he bring an offering from the gentile churches the church in jerusalem was hurting there was a famine there were a lot of other things going on economically they were just really going through like a a depression and so paul got all the gentile churches to chip in so that he could bring an offering to the saints there to show the, the Jewish Christians how much the Gentile Christians loved them and wanted to help them. So yes, they were received gladly when they got there. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James was the half-brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the epistle of James. Not the James, uh, the apostle. This was the half-brother of Jesus who didn't get saved until after Jesus rose from the dead. And now he's the, uh, the leader, the head pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. And so they went, uh, went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And he greeted them, or when he greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he shared with James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem all that God had been doing through him, and it was God, of course. Paul wasn't taking any credit for it. It was God. But all that God had done through his ministry among the Gentiles was phenomenal. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And I wish the narrative stopped there. I really do. It goes on. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, unfortunately, he is confronted with a situation that is not, I would imagine, saddened his heart. The Gentile churches had really 
been going forward. I mean, God was doing some remarkable things among the Gentiles uh, in all the areas that Paul had planted churches. They were moving ahead. The church in Jerusalem seemed to be stuck in the past. And you see all of these Jewish Christians who are still zealous for what? For the law. First of all, when we come to Acts chapter 5, 20 years ago, 20 plus years, the church in Jerusalem was 20,000 people. 20 some years has passed. And now James says there are myriads of Jews who believe and are zealous for the law. That word in the Greek means tens of thousands. This church has exploded, but it hasn't really grown in the spirit as much as it has grown in numbers. And I think it's a sad situation. These Jewish believers are zealous for the law. Now, they're not looking to the law to save them, but they're still holding on to all of the customs and ceremonies the feast days, the new moons, the Sabbaths, the ritual vows, the dietary laws. They're still clinging to these tenaciously. They're zealous for these things. Well, you know, by this time you would think that they would have grown out of some of this instead of going backward and being even more entrenched in these things. By this time, Paul had written the epistle to the Romans and the Galatians. And he explained a lot of this stuff. You say, well, didn't they read those epistles? Maybe not. It's not like email today where you click a button and six million people get to read it all at once. I mean, you know, when Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans and dispatched it by the hand of a courier to Rome, it took a while to get there. It took a while to circulate the church. And then it took a long while to get out of Rome to other places in the known world. Same with the letter to the Galatians. So it could have been that these... Saints in Jerusalem, these Jewish believers, had not really seen Paul's epistle to the Romans or to the Galatians. Maybe they did. I'll tell you the truth, it's very difficult to let go of tradition. Very difficult to break with tradition. And I'm sure that this really saddened Paul's heart. In fact, when he left, when he got to Jerusalem, at one point he was in prison, as I said, and eventually shipped off to Rome, where he was in prison there. And while in Rome, he wrote the prison epistles, one of which was Colossians. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul said, Look, don't let anybody judge you with regard to food or drink or the Sabbaths or new moons or feast days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is what? Christ. And I almost hear Paul in a sense, I almost sense that he has on his mind these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are still living in the shadows. Christ has come, Christ is the light. All these things were just shadows of him. They pointed to him. And yet here Christ has come now, the fulfillment, and they're still hanging out in the shadows. And I'll tell you the truth. I personally believe, this is my own conviction. It may be wrong. I personally believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And I believe he wrote it in response to what he saw in the church in Jerusalem among the the Jewish Christians. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer, and I believe he was Paul, is admonishing Jewish Christians to let go of the old sacrificial system, break with it. For goodness sakes, it was only a shadow of things to come. Christ has come. Let go of it. Stop living in the shadows. Come into the light. And I'm sure that a lot of these Jewish believers kept these feast days and Sabbaths and all because in their mind they realized that they 
they pointed to Christ, and now Jesus has come, and they understand that the Passover was all about Christ and the resurrection and the redemption, and, 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 and now they see these things in a whole new light, and it's okay to observe those things if you do it because it just reminds you of all that Christ did. That's fine. But for too many of these Jews, I'm convinced they were like the Judaizers who were trying to take Christianity and Judaism and merge them together, which Paul wrote to the Galatians and says that can't be done. You cannot, you cannot merge grace and law. You will destroy grace. You will divorce yourself from Christ. It's not, it doesn't happen. It can't work. And so a lot of these Jews were trying, no doubt, to still combine the works of the law with the grace of God to earn salvation. And it was a big mistake. And even though Paul fired off the letter to the, uh, to the Hebrews, a lot of them could not break what the old sacrifices and rituals and feast days. So you know what God did? In 70 AD, he just tore down the temple. Well, the Romans did it, but God allowed it. And that ended the sacrificial system once and for all. Because a lot of these Jews just could not break with the past. They were stuck in the past. And you know the sad thing about it? The church in Jerusalem was accommodating them, placating them. Instead of staying, I'm sure the reasoning went something like this. Well, all right, we're Jewish Christians, but there's still a lot of unbelieving Jews here in the city. We want to reach them, don't we? So the way to reach them is what? Become like them. Folks, whenever the church tries to become like the world to reach the world, the church always loses. The world never respects us when we try to be like the world. Let's be cool like the world. Let's have our services kind of like the Tonight Show. The pastor is like Johnny or Jay. There are pastors that start their services with a top ten list. And they try to be real cool and real funny. And the world doesn't respect that. The world laughs at that. The only thing the world will respect is when we stand up and, and live for Jesus, regardless of what the world thinks. They may not agree with us, but they'll respect us because we're living what we believe. But here the church in Jerusalem was trying so hard to reach the world by becoming like the world. You know what happened? The church just began to get frozen, the frozen chosen. That's what happens. When you try to be like the world to reach the world, you become one of the frozen chosen. You just, it just it never works. And so the church was not going forward in the spirit. They were actually moving backwards. And by the way, that's always how it works. Either you are going forward for the Lord or you're sliding backwards, but you'll never be static. You'll never just maintain the status quo. That's a fallacy. When Christians say, well, I like where I'm at. I don't have to go any farther. This is good. Either you're moving forward or sliding backward. And if you're not going forward for the Lord, I guarantee you, you are digressing you're moving backwards and that's what the church was doing they were falling back into the old ways they weren't moving forward into the light and so paul was confronted by this now his response to this is going to shock some of you but hang on don't judge paul too quickly let's let's go through this a little farther so james says look brother paul you see how many tens of thousands of jews there are who have believed here in jerusalem and they're all zealous for the law but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs of Moses. Now, is that what Paul taught? 
No, not really. I mean, Paul, Paul said, look, if God calls you circumcised, then don't be uncircumcised. If call, God calls you while un- uncircumcised, don't seek to be circumcised. What is he saying? If God calls you as a Jew, you don't have to become a Gentile. And if God calls you into his work as a, as a Gentile, you don't have to be a Jew. But he ends the epistle to the Galatians by saying, but I'm going to tell you this. Know this, circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. The only thing that matters is that you're a new creation in Christ. See? Those rituals, ceremonies, Paul said, look, the same grace that I extend to the Gentiles not to have to do these things, I extend to the Jews to go ahead and keep doing them if you want. If, if it points you to Christ a little, I mean, it makes you think about Jesus by keeping the Sabbaths or the Feast of Moses, so be it. Do it. Who cares? You want to take some time during the year to, to fast and make a vow to God, to abstain from certain foods so you can draw close to God? Paul is wonderful. I've done that. But don't put your hope in that. That's not going to save you. See? And that, that's what he's talking about here. No, he did not say that a Jew had to become a Gentile or stop being a Jew. He didn't say that a Jewish, um, Jewish parents couldn't circumcise their Jewish son. He said circumcision doesn't mean anything. It won't get you any closer to God. You want to do it, fine. People say to me, should I baptize my, my children when they're little? Why do you want to do it? Well, I don't know. I just feel like maybe it's a good thing to do. You want to do it, do it. I'll tell you it's not going to do anything for the child. Makes you feel better. Go ahead and do it. But baptism means nothing. It's something that a person does after they've received Christ as a public demonstration of their new faith in Christ. The fact that the old life is dead and buried, that's what we put them backwards in the water, they come up out of the water. They're in resurrection life now, new life in Christ. But that doesn't do anything for them spiritually. It's just a public declaration of their faith in Christ. We've got to get away from the rituals. That's the problem with rituals. It's not that the ritual is wrong if it makes you think about Jesus and the reality. The problem is too many Christians focus on the rituals, and that becomes the reality. So baptism is everything. No, it isn't. The Jews said circumcision. They've got to be circumcised. Paul says, go ahead and do it if you want. It's not going to do anything spiritually. We are saved by faith alone. That's it. Faith in Jesus. Anyway, so, you know, Paul, the word's out. I mean, that you're not a good Jewish boy anymore, and you're telling people that they Jews should, you know, forsake Moses. And, you know, verse 22, what then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses um, so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Oh, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from sexual morality. Paul, we've already decided that this has nothing to do with the Gentiles. We've already decided that. Remember Acts 15? We're talking about the Jews now. They're a little offended because, you know, they don't think you're really a good Jewish guy anymore. So why don't you, you know, placate them, you know? Why don't you kind of, you know, pacify them? Well, that was the problem with the church in Jerusalem. They were placating and pacifying everybody, it looked like. 
What was this vow? Well, many believe this was a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was uh, spoken of in number six, and you could enter into this Nazarite vow. It was a time of consecration. It was 60 or, excuse me, 30 or 60 or 90 days in length. Most common was a 30 day period. And if you wanted to enter into a Nazarite vow for those 30 days, we'll say, you didn't cut your hair as a man, you stayed away from everything that was connected to grapes. So we're talking grape leaves, the grapes themselves, grape seeds, wine, vinegar, everything that was connected to the vine you abstained from. And during the course of this time, you would have some sacrifices that you would have to offer. There were several animals involved. It was a pretty pricey thing. And then the last week, you have to spend the whole week there in the temple serving the Lord and praying and drawing close to him. So which means you have to take a week of work off. So for a week, you didn't get paid. It was a very costly thing to enter into one of these Nazarite vows. Because of it, they would often look for sponsors who would sponsor them. And that's what James is proposing to Paul. Look, we've got four young guys. They've taken a Nazarite vow. Paul, why don't you sponsor them? Boy, that would go a long way to helping the Jews here in Jerusalem know that, you know, you're a pretty good guy still. You're not against Moses. You keep the law yourself. Now, at this point, there are people that jump up and down and say, Paul, no, don't do it, you know. I could just hear a lot of us were there standing with Paul. No, Paul, don't do it. Don't compromise, you know. And, but Paul does it. And it really bothers some people. In fact, verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. See, he took them into the temple, and... Um, the last week was spent there in the temple, if you took one of these vows. Uh, they entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So Paul goes along with this. And some people have a real problem with this. They really think that Paul is totally compromising here. But again, what did Paul say? I have lived in all good conscience toward God. You turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to the heart of Paul. And I'll tell you this. We can all learn something from the humility and flexibility of Paul the Apostle. Listen to what Paul said in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, I as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. That's exactly what Paul is doing here in Acts chapter 21. Paul realizes that to keep a Nazarite vow is no big deal. I mean, he understands that. It's just a way of consecrating yourself to God. And if it's a matter of the Jews in Jerusalem wanting to continue on with the feast days and the new moons and the Sabbaths, and even the dietary laws, Paul feels that that's sad because they really ought to be moving past all that legalism. But if they want to do it, and they're not looking to those things that bring them salvation, Paul is like, well, who cares? If by becoming a Jew in that sense, I can have common ground and then witness to these folks, and those that are on the borderline will get saved, it's worth it, Right? You know, there's flexibility without compromise. You don't have to compromise. You know, not, let me put it this way. Not all flexibility is compromise. Some people think if you 
um, give in on, on something at all, you're compromising. Not necessarily. Paul wasn't compromising the faith. He still believed in salvation by grace through faith. But he was saying, look, these are non-essential issues. Why are we going to fight over these non-essential issues? If these Jews believe in the Sabbaths and the feast days, so what? If I can use it to win them to Christ or, or help others to get away from this stuff eventually and, and start walking in total freedom, so be it. So Paul says, look, I became, you know, to the Jews under the law, I became as one under the law. To those who are without law, as, as without law, yet not being without law toward God, but under the law, under law towards Christ. So Paul said, look, to Gentiles who were not under the law, I became as one of them, but I never violated the law of God. I just was flexible. I went to a Gentile's house. They put ham in front of me. I ate it. Who cares? All things, all food are sanctified by God. You know, so if they had sat down at a Gentile's house, they put a pork chop in front of me, I ate it. I want to become, you know, I'm not going to offend them. What, I'm going to offend them over a piece of meat? Become as a Gentile so I can reach them for Christ. That was Paul's mentality. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. God bless Paul. I tell you, I wish more Christians would be a little less rigid on things that they shouldn't be rigid about, more flexible, more willing to reach out to people and not fight over things that are just not worth it. You know? Things that are just not, they're, they're not things that we ought to be fighting about and just, be more flexible in the spirit. We'd reach a lot more people.